Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for what you uh, have given us to study and to, uh, to learn. We pray that you would help to uh, work within us, orient our minds uh, toward a right view of Christian knowledge, a right view of Christian, the interaction between faith and reason. Uh, help us to understand uh, how all this works together that we uh, would have our, our minds rightly oriented toward conversations with other people. I pray that um, uh, what we covered tonight wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be over anybody's head or, or escape anybody, but I just pray that you would help us to, to understand and grasp these principles, uh, to see the contrasts we need to see, and to have our directions set uh, by the theology that comes from Scripture. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful uh, not only gospel witnesses, but also gospel defenders, that we would um, offer a, a good defense, a reasonable defense from a Christian worldview uh, to those who ask us for the hope that is within us. I pray that you would continue to sanctify us by the truth that uh, so that the witness that we give and the defense that we make is all conducted in Christian love with uh, an attitude of reverence toward you and respect toward others, that we would uh, uh, respond to the world and interact with the world with a, with a humble boldness, um, always meek people, yet never, always making an offense, an apology, but never apologetic about the truth. Help us to stand uh, firm with you and call people to, to faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to think of ourselves, as the Bible describes, as ambassadors for Christ. Uh, we are citizens of heaven, and we are on assignment here uh, to represent you, to, uh, to preach the gospel. And um, one day we know that you will bring us back to heaven, our, our home forever. We love you. We thank you for uh, the time we have together tonight. We pray that it would accomplish your good purposes in us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so just a reminder about the schedule. We're going to, so tonight, we're going to talk about a contrast and apologetic method. We are going to be meeting next Sunday night, October 1st, and then we have a break for conference and conference recovery. Uh, and so we'll come back together on October 22nd, and then we'll be back in November, okay? So we'll give you all the dates. They're on the website if you have any questions. I wanted to um, take just a moment here at the beginning and show you uh, where I'm getting the stuff I'm getting. Um, that, uh, so that maybe if you wanted to buy some of these, I'll, I'll suggest one for you to buy, and a book to, for you to buy. And if, um, if that appeals to you, uh, I can start feeding you more stuff, okay? But this, what, I, what I'm covering and going through really uh, comes from a man named Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Cornelius Van Til taught at First Princeton Seminary with J. Gresham Machen. When Machen went and started Westminster, Cornelius Van, he asked Cornelius Van Til to join him. The two of them, um, the two of them uh, really formed a, a theological backbone there at Westminster Seminary. J. Gresham Machen took uh, Protestant theology uh, and really built Westminster Seminary's Theology. They were, they are covenantal, but they, with regard to the Protestant uh, Reformation doctrines that we also adhere to, uh, they, 
Dre Gershman Major was a great defender of that, and especially in the face of an encroaching, insistent uh, liberalism, uh, Protestant liberalism, uh, during his time. So he was a great defender of theology, uh, you know, especially in the face of a cultural liberalism and a Protestant mainline liberalism. Cornelius Van Til took those same principles and applied them to apologetics. So it's a very consistent coming out of the Protestant Reformation, the souls of the Reformation, and all that, the doctrines of grace, and then applying them to apologetic methods. So this is very consistent. This uh, defense of the faith, Christian apologetics, these are really syllabi that came from some of his uh, lectures put into a book form. Uh, they sometimes read like a syllabus, and so, they, and also he's a. He spoke several languages uh, and, and studied in a number of more languages, and he's a Dutch man who writes in English, and you can tell. So um, <laughs> this, uh, th that's why we are so thankful for this man named uh, Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson died, I think, in, I think in the 90s. Uh, he died, just young man, 40-something years old, 40, somewhere around my age. But he was brilliant, and he was really the popularizer and the interpreter of Cornelius Van Til. He's written this big tome called Van Til's Apologetic. Uh, I don't invite you right off to buy this one. Um, if you want to look at the uh, presuppositional apologetics stated and defended, that's this book, Greg Bonson. But the one I would recommend to you to buy um, is called Always Ready. Always ready, it's Directions for Defending the Faith. And uh, this is by Greg Bonson. This is a great way, it's a little paperback, uh, very, very readable, very short chapters. And um, I think it's a great way for you to get into the subject beyond what I'm doing here, okay? So what I'm trying to do is to take this material here, um, uh, some, you know, a series of lectures from Dr. Bonson, and I'm trying to digest that for you and bring it down into, uh, you know, a few courses that we have over the fall for your edification. And so whatever may be a little unclear in whatever I present or lacking will be augmented well there, um, but it is, it is difficult to try to bring this all down and try to give it to you uh, in a way that's not overwhelming. I want it to be accessible to you, and I hope that, uh, hope that tonight uh, doesn't uh, go in another direction. <laughs> so I, want it to be, I still want it to be accessible. What I'd like to do first as we start off is um, begin with just a short review, reflecting back on the portions of the debates we watched between uh, Frank Turek and David Silverman, the atheist, and the second between James White and David Silverman. And uh, before I ask a different uh, question about those two different approaches, just to, again, paint a contrast for us. Um, we saw two different approaches. We saw two different apologetic methodologies. We also saw put on display uh, two different contrasting theologies of those two apologists, okay? Well, that's what was on display. But I want to go back to the four points that we learned from 1 Peter 3.15. And I'll just state those for you. 1 Peter 3.15 says, um, I have this memorized, but I don't want don't to blow it. So, in your hearts, uh, it says in the ESV, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts is the, way, is the kind of phrase I want you to have in your head. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. As set apart Christ 
within your mind, within your internal person, your thinking, set him apart as Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered as those who uh, slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So that's the, that's the kind of key verse. And we wanted to say, uh, we reflected on that in another text. We said, first of all, apologetics does not require us to go on the offensive. Apologetics is defensive, not offensive. What in our Christian behavior toward the unbeliever is offensive? Word. If I can put it that way. Okay, the word, the prayer, but I'm talking about a, a, a great commission job that we've been given to do. Evangelism. evangelism, right? So we go on the offensive, we go on the march with our evangelism, with the gospel. That's not apologetics. Now, when we are giving the gospel, oftentimes apologetics mixes right in that conversation, doesn't it? Okay, so I'm not, I'm trying to make a distinction between apologetics and evangelism, apologetics defense, evangelism offense, just for the purpose of understanding this content, okay? We understand, though, that it blends together, that it's going to come together in the course of a conversation. But apologetics, uh, technically is a defense. It is a, that's what the word means. Apologia means def to make a defense, okay? Second, apologetics does not require us to persuade anyone of anything, does it? Do we persuade when we're trying to evangelize? We attempt to persuade, don't we? We want to persuade, but who is it that really is responsible for persuading the inner man of the gospel, of the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Good. So we are required to give an answer. We're required to make a defense for our Christian truth and our Christian conduct, our Christian hope. But persuasion in and of itself is frankly, that's God's work. And only he can accomplish it, and only he can accomplish it by the invisible work of the Holy Spirit. We do our job, and yes, in, a, in evangelism, we want to persuade that person with as much as we can to believe, to trust God, to, to put their faith in Christ. When we're doing apologetics, though, and making that defense, we're answering the questions that come to us. Okay? Now, we may turn it around and ask them some questions, too, and that's what we're going to get to. But... Persuasion is the spirit's parts. Third thing, in apologetics, we are disallowed from being combative, argumentative, or quarrelsome. As Christians, in the apologetic task, as in everything that we do, we need to do this, uh, make our defense with gentleness in our speech and our behavior, um, and an attitude of respect toward uh, people, toward the person we're talking to. Fourth, we need to make our defense with the same uh, this is very important, and this is really what's going to kind of inform what we're, what we're talking about uh, for the rest of the night. When we do apologetics, just like when we do evangelism, just like when we do discipleship, just like when we do counseling or anything else that we do, it's got to be we make our defense with the same authority that informs all of our theology. Okay? We don't have one authority for making a defense for the faith and another authority for evangelism. We don't have one authority for making a defense for the faith and another authority for all of our theology that we study. It's the same authority comes together because who is Lord in our hearts? Christ is Lord. His Lordship governs all of our thinking. So that informs our metaphysics, 
our study of the things that are being. It informs our epistemology, how we know what we know. It informs our ethics, all of our behavior. Metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, those three things are what come together to make a cohesive worldview, okay? Our entire worldview is governed by the authority of Christ. That's how we need to think. So we don't leave the Lordship of Christ behind when we converse with objecting unbelievers. Rather, we're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason, for the hope that's in us. We do that with gentleness and respect. Okay. How did you see some of that displayed in the videos we watched? Or not displayed? Can anybody remember back? Was it a couple weeks? <coughs> Can anybody remember that? Yeah. The like. first, The first guy that... Okay, White was the second one who was yeah, the first Frank Turk, yeah. Frank Turk, Turk it, it kind of seemed like he had no defense at all. He was all over the map. Right. It kind of seemed to me like he was going into a battle of wits half prepared. He okay. just, and this guy just kept throwing and throwing at him, right. and he never was able to firmly answer a question because he did not base anything on the scripture. He took the scripture okay. and he put it over here. Okay, so what's that a violation of? Taking the scripture and putting it over here. It's a violation of this whole issue of lordship. Right. The lordship of Christ needs to come into every conversation. And I just want to say, for the sake of clarity, that Frank Turek, brilliant guy. He's a brilliant man. And, you know, that, that's why it's so important. We do look... You know, like we're not that brilliant when we set aside our theology, when we set our, aside our worldview uh, and enter into the unbelievers' worldview and try to reason in, on their playing field. So, great point. Thank you. Uh, anybody else want to mention what you saw displayed? Just those four points we talked about, what you saw displayed in the video. Yeah. I don't remember the names, but the first one, it seemed like he was more concerned with having a witty comeback than yeah. defending his faith or providing any kind of proof of the gospel. Okay, so it did seem like he was trying to score points with the audience, you, and you could hear, if we let the video play a little longer, we didn't because of time, you would see the audience start to clap more, and just it seemed a little bit like a, you know, like a show. Yeah, it did. And that, and, and frankly, David Silverman was exhibiting bad behavior, but you could see him just start to get really frustrated with his not answering the question and trying to score points with the audience. And I would say that that is a, a, a not a gentleness or reverence a violation of that principle. Yeah, good. Melissa? Going along with the audience responding more, I think it's because they were entertained that David is the atheist, right? That he was getting so angry. And they weren't paying attention to the fact that he was getting angry, not because he was frustrated with that he, he was being proven wrong, which is what I think they were interpreting, yeah. but that the other guy wasn't actually answering anything because it, when we watched, compared it to the other video, and I, I didn't catch that until we compared it to the other video and how calm the other evan evangelist stayed. Yeah. And, and David did just finally walk out like, okay, I mean, and the time was up too, but like, I'm, I'm done. Like he, he was actually like getting the answers that he wanted. So he wasn't mad if he was getting the answers. He just had nothing else to say. And there was a huge difference in, right. I think, with our culture valuing entertainment the way that they do. We often lose track and we, we like to see the other person get riled, even though that's not the purpose of it. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's so good observation. That's exactly right, that, that you could see the difference between the two apologists and how they handled the same atheist with the same argument, the same objections, the same challenging pride, arrogance dripping from him, and they handled him 
you know, one handled him well, the other didn't. And it, it's interesting, too, that there's a temptation when we get into these conversations with an unbeliever. Listen, let's, let's be face it. Most of the unbelievers we talk to have no idea what you're talking about when you say the word epistemology. Okay? We, most of us, we're, we're not fluent in that kind of language. But we're getting more fluent, getting more uh, informed. So we start talking about some of these things with unbelievers who, honestly, all they think about is the next TV show when they're off with work. And I mean, it's some of the some of the very superficial things in life. We start to talk about these things with them. They haven't thought about these things sometimes ever. And so it could be really easy for us to take take this very superior attitude and position with them and just pounce. We have to restrain ourselves with an attitude of Christian love, and grace, even let them win a point just for the sake of trying to keep the thing going. Yeah, Tammy? It's really easy to become reactionary because yeah. they want to drive the conversation to what their viewpoint is. Yeah. And we react to it rather than saying, you know, than, than taking control of right. the direction or the thought process because we just get reactionary and then we become like that first guy. Yeah. We, we answer the fool according to his folly and we become like him. Yeah. yeah, so we need to be on guard about just being reactive. And that's what, hopefully, what we're learning here will teach us to be more proactive and have a whole lot more, um, you know, control, may seem an unpleasant word, but have control of the conversation. Maybe a better word is to lead the conversation. We, have, we, we exhibit better leadership in the conversation because after all, we're the Christian believer with the right worldview. By God's grace, they're the ones in darkness. They need to be led out of darkness and into light. And so we need to show leadership in that conversation and not let the unbeliever just spin us all over the place. But it is. It's easy to become reactionary. Uh, I think Scott and then you, Gary. Watching White and Silverman, when Silverman basically accused White of everything that atheists accuse Christians of or Christian leadership of, profiteering and whatnot, um, my first thought was, that, that was a fight that he shouldn't have been there for. Like, the debate might have been unnecessary if it was going to lead to that accusation. Because then he felt the need to defend himself. And I'm, I'm not in it for the money. You know, and people who know me know I'm not in it for the money. But that sounds like an empty argument that he couldn't, you know, basically his, his life was on display at that point. I watched him bristle, but respond well. Are you talking about Turk or, or White? White. It was white. We watched so, like the whole thing when we got home. Oh, okay. You know, like, okay, gotcha. So Silverman said, you know, that religion, religion's there, you know, basically to right, take right. your money and, and your resources. Right, right. And White defended himself instead of just saying, well, that's not actually true and letting it be. Um, and I, it just occurred to me that, that that whole debate, it's kind of like maybe a situation that a Christian should possibly avoid. Well, I, I, yeah, so I, I've also watched it, and, and um, I, think, I think with uh, every apologist is going to choose what they're going to answer and what they're not. And so he just chose, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put this lie to rest by telling them this. So he, he brought out evidences from his own uh, life, his own you know, personal standards of integrity and virtue. And, so we'll, and we'll get into some of that, but um, he chose at that point to bring that into the conversation just because of, uh, it was a point of contention that he wanted to diffuse that, diffuse that argument. So, and, but you're right, it, it sometimes can feel like we're stooping to a, a foolish charge, but nonetheless. There was an instance when White was making a very patient and a very concerted effort 
to very carefully clarify the question that was being brought forth by Silverman. And once he clarified the question, he, he corrected him and say, no, by this, by God's decree, this would happen, or by God's decree, this would happen. And, and when do you mean that? Do you mean here, or do you mean there, I mean, like before creation, after original sin? When do you mean that? And then he would clarify each individual answer. So I thought he was answering him carefully, and he was answering him thoughtfully. And I thought also that every answer he gave was, was an answer that was given very well informed by Scripture, although oftentimes I didn't hear him quote Scripture, but I heard him walk through Theol very patiently with him, and, and I thought he honored him by giving him that patience, by giving him the time. Uh, the way Silverman spoke to him, I'm not sure I would have had the patience. I, I thought Silverman was very rude. But. Yeah, and it is a debate format where there is a, bit, a little bit of showmanship going on with Silverman as well. Probably. Yeah, he's trying to, he's trying to tweak, yeah. tweak him a little bit and see if he can throw him off. But, sure. um, and, and uh, so, okay, so this, that, actually what you just said uh, anticipates my next question. Let me ask it and then we'll see if See what come up with what what do you think strengthened and you're you're actually saying it but what strengthened james white's answer to david silverman's objections remember it was the objection of theodicy justify god in the presence of evil that's the issue uh so what strengthened james white's answer to silverman's objections about theodicy and by contrast what weakened frank turk's responses leah i think it was very careful to clarify terms Okay, good. Clarifying terms. Make sure and define everything to make sure that they were both on the same page. Whereas I think in the first one, um, is Turek. Turek. Um, Turek was assuming that he knew where Silverman was coming from, and also assuming that they were speaking about the same thing. Right. Yeah, I I saw in Turek so many things that I've done in the past. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I've heard this one before, and I know the answer to it. So before I even let it get out of your mouth, I'm going to give you the answer right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think, what, to me, what was interesting about White was I felt like he followed Christ's example. It is written pretty much when he answered, he'd go back to the Word of God. He did. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't uh, get off into the terminology he wanted. He kept coming back. I have to answer pretty much what God's word says on this subject. Right. And as long as he kept doing that, you could tell Silverman seemed to get more frustrated with that. Yes. He was trying to get him into his court. Right. And White was not going to that court. Right. <clears throat> Saying, come play over here where there right. is no word of God. Right. That's what he's trying to entice him to do, is to right. come over here. And and it seemed that Turk, by contrast, he jumped into that realm right. from the very beginning. He actually <clears> sat <throat> in there. Mm -hmm. That, well, we can't use the word of God. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> and so, so this is the point, this is the major point I want you to see. The thing that strengthened James White and weakened Frank Turner is the fact that James White stuck with God's word for all of his thinking and, and his answers. And when he was clarifying terms, when he was clarifying the question that was asked, like Gary said from the very beginning here, you can tell that White's mind is comparing whatever he's saying to a standard. Yep. It's to the Word of God. So he knows that standard. He's comparing every term. He's clarifying every term, clarifying every question, and saying, okay, how does that measure up to what God says? Turek, he's, he's a Christian, and he should think the same way, and yet he's like handcuffing that part of his brain and then trying to jump into the field and play the game with, with David Silverman. And so he gets batted around the field like a cat bats around a wounded mouse. 
that's how it will be too if we handcuff our brain and uh, you know don't let the word of god enter into it it was almost like watching the uh, from the bible the foolish man building his house on the sand versus the wise man building his house on the rock right that's right he's the the one on the sand crumbled away the other on the rock stood firm yeah Yeah, that's a great that's a great analogy great illustration very quickly i got i got half hour in so so one one of the things was that uh Turek's answer to the question was renounce, renounce the Lordship of Christ by demoting God's sovereignty. Yeah, good. And wiping Okay. So the one, the first one, Turek really did renounce the Lordship of Christ in the argument. And that, yeah, that's not, that's, look, he's a brother. In that instance, he was not faithful in what he was supposed to be doing. And I, I've committed those same errors. I've committed those same sins. Okay? So we want to not do that. Um, okay, so with that in mind, uh, just a quick review. What I, wanna, what, I, what I want us to accomplish tonight is to be more deeply reflective about the differences between, really what we saw on those videos, and be more reflective about the differences between a consistent, biblically faithful apologetic and one that is not, okay? Because frankly, our, our land, our culture, our time is dominated by examples of apologetic methods that are not entirely consistent. Uh, there are some very intelligent, uh, so even some very brilliant uh, Christian men and women, godly Christians, sincere and bold, uh, but who m- step into these errors all the time. And it's because of, it's because of the books. We, we go to the bookstore, we go, we go online, check apologetic texts, and they're filled with a different apologetic. So uh, that's what we want to talk about. We want to learn, uh, in contrast to that, the most consistent way possible to defend the faith biblically, preserving our and protecting our commitment to the Lordship of Christ. So we need to think, I want to start with, I just want to encourage us to think antithetically. Okay? I mean, when I say antithetically, uh, ant- antithesis, this, this is not that. Black versus white, Christian versus non-Christian, believer versus unbeliever. To think in terms uh, like the Bible gives us to think antithetically. And see, we, we need to see the fundamental difference, the antithesis between the believing mind and the unbelieving mind. And the difference between those centers on this issue of neutrality. Uh, Dr. Bonson likes to say uh, to his Christian apologetic students regarding neutrality, unbelievers aren't and you shouldn't be. Okay? Unbelievers are not neutral and you better not be neutral. We're not neutral. We are dedicated to the Lordship of Christ. We represent him. So we're not neutral entering into a conversation. We also need to understand that neither are they. They're not entering into the conversation neutral, unbiased, unprejudiced. They're entering into it fully committed to their worldview, which is a worldview of rebellion against God. Okay? We need to enter into every conversation um, knowing that the unbeliever is morally committed to their rebellion. It is a, for them, it is a moral issue. Um, This is an issue of right and wrong for them. Okay? It's false. It's based on a false theology. It's based on uh, lies and deception and everything else, but it is still uh, a moral commitment of theirs. That's why it is so hard to dislodge. Uh, In fact, it's impossible to dislodge. It takes regeneration. It takes the death of them and the life of Christ to to, uh, give them something different, enable them to actually think and reason. 
So their hearts are bent by original sin. They have been born into sin. Uh, they have a sin nature. They are therefore not neutral, but they are biased. They are prejudiced. They are not at all neutral when it comes to God's claims on their lives. They resent and resist his authority. They assume themselves to be autonomous. That means they are self-ruled, self-governed, all according to the dictates of their own reason, what seems reasonable to them. Okay? So the reason of fallen man is also fallen. Doesn't mean it's just broken. It means more profoundly, more insidiously, that the fallen reason of man, fallen man, is hostile to God. That is, it is at enmity with God. Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is not able to do that. So, mankind in his fallen condition, he doesn't submit to God's law. His reason is hostile to God, therefore it cannot submit to God's law. Fallen man is not neutral. He serves the enemy, not just in his ethical behavior, but also in his thinking and his reasoning, in his epistemology, in his, in his theology, or his uh, metaphysics, his moral judgments, his entire worldview, everything is tainted by sin and bent towards sin. So without, um, I don't want to go through a full study of homardiology at this point and the depravity of the fallen human condition, but here are just a few texts that comport and, and kind of line up with what Romans 8, 7 clearly says about man. Gen Genesis 6, 5, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's how we're all born. <laughs> we're born that way. Psalm 53, 2-3. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. So there is no one who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, then you also... Can uh, then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Basically, you can't, okay? You're bent towards sin. Matthew 12, 34 to 35, you brood of vipers. This is the sweet words of Jesus. <laughs> How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Let's talk about tainted reasoning. There is no neutral, unbiased, untainted reason. John 3, 19 to 20, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Romans 1, 20 to 22, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. That's their reason right there, futility. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Uh, Ephesians 4, 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's just a brief survey. The Bible has many more texts so we could pile on here. But just a brief survey to show that man's reason is not neutral. It's tainted by sin. His heart is committed to rebellion against God. His reason is not neutral, so it would be wrong for us to assume. If Christ and his word is Lord over our thinking, it would be wrong for us, I'm saying morally wrong for us, to enter into a conversation and make the opposite assumption. 
that that unbeliever's reason can lead him to the truth. We cannot assume that. We cannot. We must not. So in order to be obedient to Christ, in order to honor the lordship of Christ in this conversation, we need to assume what the Bible says and tells us about that unbeliever's thinking, that it's sinfully bent. Okay, so we don't appeal to his autonomous reason when making arguments as if he is the arbiter and the judge over right and wrong in this, this uh, conversation. And yet, that is exactly what evangelical apologists have done for many, many years, like their Roman Catholic apologists before them, like many Christians throughout church history. So what we want to do now is expose the reasoning that Christians have used in the past so that we can paint the contrast with a method that we will commend. And we can call this portion the ghost of Socrates. The ghost of Socrates. Dr. Greg Bonson has really done us a great service by contrasting apologetic methods. He actually has a book called Socrates or Christ. And uh, he unpacks all of this. As an illustration, um, he went back to the Socratic method of defense practiced by Socrates, recorded by Plato in the dialogue, The Apology of Socrates, Apology, The Apologia, The Defense of Socrates. Uh, you may remember from, oh, somewhere in the murky past of your education, that uh, Socrates uh, was charged by the elders of Athens who charged him with atheism and corrupting the youth of Athens with his ideas, and they were going to kill him for it. Um, not exactly the land of the free, home of the brave in Athens at the time, <laughs> but as you're going to hear as we go through this, Socrates was a meddlesome, troublesome figure in uh, public life. Here's the charge out of, out of Plato's dialogue, uh, which I have here if anybody would like to borrow this and make a photocopy. Um, but here's the charge. Socrates is guilty of criminal meddling. In that, he inquires into things below the earth and in the sky and makes the weaker argument defeat the stronger and teaches others to follow his example. That's the charge. Certainly worthy of death. Death. <laughs> but from Socrates' perspective, he believed, this is where his metaphysics comes into view. This is where his theology comes into view. He believed that the highest, most godlike aspect of a man is his reason. It is your reason that makes you most godlike. That is a spark of the divine in you. Your reason. By man using his reason, he is the most like the divine that he can be. So, he viewed his work, his conversations, all his interactions with the people of Athens as a service to humanity, to help others to achieve their full potential by examining their lives, by turning away from the unworthy goals, abandoning lower pursuits, and knowing themselves by exercising their God-like, God-given reason. He said this in the dialogue, my very good friend, you are an Athenian and belong to a city which is the greatest and most famous in the world for its wisdom and strength. Are you not ashamed that you give your attention to acquiring as much money as possible and similarly with reputation and honor and give no attention or thought to truth and understanding and the perfection of your soul? Wow. Sounds great, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. A Christian could say that. 
But he's appealing to the fact that they have this innate sense of reason, this spark of the divine that must be tapped into. And I'll tell you folks, this is the basis of all of our education right here. Tap into that child's reason, help them to know thyself. Uh, my sons came back from school saying their teachers are pressing them, know thyself, know thyself. This is coming from Socrates, it's coming from Plato. So if, they, if we could just get into the child and educate that reason, educate that spark of the divine, it's going to, all that education is going to help them to make the right choices. Say no to drugs and say yes to money and good citizenship and all that kind of stuff. And make good patriotic kids. Because, after all, American democracy is the highest ideal on the earth. And, and uh, so we're going to get them to see that if we just educate their little reason and bring them up as good citizens. So you can see how... Those who are content, let's say, with living the unexamined life, uh, like they are fine just going after money. <laughs> they, they, they like that. They might feel condemned by a man of such high ideals. But Socrates pressed on. He had more to say. Here's where we see why they wanted to put him to death, frankly. He says this, And if any of you disputes this, and professes to care about these things, I shall not at once let him go or leave him. No, I shall question him and examine him and test him. And if it appears that in spite of his profession, he has made no real progress toward goodness, I shall reprove him for neglecting what is of supreme importance and giving his attention to trivialities. I shall do this to everyone that I meet, young or old, foreigner or fellow citizen, but especially to you, my fellow citizens, inasmuch as you are closer to me in kinship. Aren't we blessed, you know? So by observing here how Socrates defended himself uh, as we go through this in the face of these charges, and his life is on the line, okay? So he's, he's making a defense. And according to Dr. Bonson's insights, I think he helps us to see a good contrast in apologetic methodologies, and it's going to clarify for us the difference between a Christian theistic and a non-Christian or an inconsistent Christian way of defending the faith. So question we're asking here, what are the appropriate tests or standards for defending the faith? Here's how Socrates, here's what Socrates thought, here's how he defended his cause. Number one, appeal to the facts. Now again, he is, he's going after, he's assuming the Athenian reason. He's assuming their unbiased reason, that reason will lead them to a proper end. So he starts with an appeal to the facts. He answers his accusers, Socrates does, by calling them to always stick to the facts. Not listen to rumors, false accusations, slander, not to give in to dark suspicions about his behavior. He says, I will offer you substantial proofs of what I have said, not theories, but what you can appreciate better, facts. So, appeal to the facts. Just lay the facts before reason, they'll come to the right conclusion. That's all it takes. Number two, an appeal to logic or appeal to logical coherence, logical consistency. So he'd been, a, for example, he'd been a, uh, charged, one of the charges was atheism. And yet, there's a, one of the accusers named Miletus, and in his statement of the charges, he says, Socrates is guilty of corrupting the minds of the young and of believing in deities of his own invention instead of the gods recognized by the state. So he labored, right, he labors in his argumentation with Miletus, completely laying a trap 
for Miletus, then springing the trap, and here's the springing the trap, that Miletus has stated first that I don't believe in gods, and then again that I do, since I believe in supernatural beings. So what's he, what's he saying? Miletus, you're inconsistent. Your system, your charges, have led you to a logical inconsistency. You say I'm an atheist, and yet you say, that even in the charge itself, that I'm not an atheist. Okay? So he's demonstrating that logical inconsistency. The facts themselves don't support the charge of atheism, but the state charges admit that Socrates is not an atheist. So it's an appeal to logical incoherence. Number three, an appeal to benefit. This is another thing he does in his argumentation, appealing to their reason. Number one, logic. Number two, logical or uh, facts. Number two, logical coherence. Number three, an appeal to benefit. An appeal to benefit, or you might say beneficial consequences. Socrates defends himself on the basis of the benefit that he has brought to the citizens of Athens. He starts back and talks about his military service, and then all the way up to the present moment of sharpening their reason and the service he gives to the city of Athens. So Socrates says, quote, I assure you that if I am what I claim to be and you put me to death, you will harm yourselves more than me. <laughs> I love that. And then he also says this, so far from pleading on my behalf, as might be supposed, I'm really pleading on your behalf to save you from misusing the gift of God by condemning me. If you put me to death, you will not easily find anyone to take my place. <laughs> I love this section in particular. It is my belief that no greater good has ever befallen you in this city than my service to my God. <laughs> For I spend all my time going about trying to persuade you, young and old, to make you first and chief concern, uh, make your first and chief concern not for your bodies nor for your possessions, but for the highest welfare of your souls, proclaiming as I go, wealth does not bring goodness, but goodness brings wealth and every other blessing, both to the individual and to the state. He is just such a lovely man, you know, so why would you put him to death? You, you put him to death at your own expense. You'll lose a treasure. So as Bonson put it, so he defended himself by appealing here to the elevated, noble, beneficial results of his service and outlook. What's he trying to do? He's trying to bring the service, the beneficial result of helping the Athenians escape materialism, pursuing wealth, and to pursue the highest good of goodness, their own reason, coming to its full potential, which will bring wealth and all that besides. But don't get caught up in that. So he's trying to help them escape what he sees as a, really a social and moral ill, which we see in our own culture too, don't we? We see people trapped by the same thing. Number four, he appealed to integrity, to personal integrity and personal virtue. Socrates called his accusers to examine his own life and pointed out how he had served the city of Athens faithfully in military service and personal integrity, and he did none of it for personal gain, but served for nothing and even to great sacrifice. Socrates said, he pleaded with them, does it seem natural that I should have neglected my own affairs and endured the humiliation of allowing my family to be neglected for all these years while I busied myself all the time on your behalf going like a father or an elder brother to each to see each one of you privately and urging you to set your thoughts on goodness. The witness that I can offer to prove the truth of my statement is, I think, a convincing one, my poverty. 
seems to me that God has attached me to this city to perform the office of such a fly. He's talking about when he is in context, he's talking about one of those stinging flies that annoys a lazy horse and gets the lazy horse to wake up and actually start moving. That's kind of how he saw himself as a provocateur of sorts. He says, and all day long, I never cease to settle here, there, and everywhere, rousing, persuading, reproving every one of you. You will not easily find another like me, gentlemen, and if you take my advice, you will spare my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if Socrates were a member of our church, I'd first get him to pay attention to his home life, (laughs) because he says he's neglecting his family all these years, and then I would talk to him about being a busybody. You know, he's running around getting into everybody's houses. What in the world? Get to work, Socrates. Don't, don't blame your poverty on your beneficial service to Athens. Anyway, those are examples. Sorry. Those are examples. But Socrates is appealed to, all through his dialogue, this superior virtue. In fact, even from the beginning, he says, sort of, he's sort of laying it on thick here. This is my first appearance in a court of law at the age of 70, so I'm a complete stranger to the language of this place. You know, you see what he's saying? He's like, he's appealing for a pass on his ability to converse in legalese uh, appropriately before this body, but he subtly and cleverly asserted his own goodness. 70 years, I've never been in a court. Here I am, and you're hitting me with a speeding ticket. Really? I'm an upstanding law-abiding citizen. So, to this point, Socrates has appealed to the facts, number one, to logical consistency or logical coherence, number two, um, to benefit uh, or beneficial consequence, and then number, that's number three, number four, to personal integrity, personal virtue. And again, keep in mind, he's putting all of this before for the consideration of his fellow Athenians, trusting that their reason, the most godlike thing about them, will lead them to right conclusions, right? One more. He appeals finally to, when, when all is lost, he appeals to inner guidance. Inner guidance. When he's charged with ulterior motives and question with suspicion about the fact that he has not submitted himself to the scrutiny that's required for influence through seeking public office, um, Socrates retorted, like, the, basically they're saying, look, you've got, you want all this influence, You've got certainly an intellect and an influence, but you don't have a position conferred upon you by the state so that you can have a role to exercise this influence. Why won't you do that? You know, what's your ulterior motive? And so they're saying this proves your desire to undermine the entire structure and fabric of our society. And Socrates is having to defend himself and saying, here's why uh, I didn't serve in public office, which would have put him before scrutiny and opened up (laughs) scrutiny by his peers. So he, he retorted, uh, divine guidance has forbidden me to do so. That's what he said. I am subject to a divine or supernatural experience, which Miletus saw fit to travesty in his indictment. It began in my early childhood, a sort of voice which comes to me, and when it comes, it always dissuades me from what I am proposing to do and never urges me on. It is this that debars me from entering public life. Socrates truly believed uh, that his divine charge to serve the city of Athens and with his, with his wisdom, which was given to him by God, came from the god at Delphi. Uh, you remember maybe the Delphi oracle in some of your reading biblical history? Uh, he calls this oracle, uh, the god at Delphi, he calls an unimpeachable authority. 
And in obedience to that God, revealed through this the mystical incantations of the Delphi Oracle, Socrates believed. Do you know about the Delphi Oracle? She she would she would be up above a, a pit where there was like this sulfur and, and kind of smoke burning, and she would kind of hover over it and breathe in all this stuff. And she was already high on something, and she would breathe this stuff in and come away and start to, you know, prognosticate and prophesy, and everybody would like live their life based on that. Socrates did. Again, a little error in his metaphysics, I think. <laughs> but um, starting points are important, aren't they? <laughs> uh, so, um, so in obedience to the God, uh, Socrates believed real wisdom is the property of God. And this oracle is his way of telling us that human wisdom has little or no value. That is why I, I still go about seeking and searching in obedience to the divine command. If I think that anyone is wise, I try to help the cause of God by proving that he is not. <laughs> Again, at this point, you can start to sympathize with the elders of Athens, right? <laughs> Curse the oracle of Delphi for unleashing this man on our city, you know? The favors of all of his great service to us. We should be so blessed. So, what have we seen here? <clears throat> Five principles or standards that Socrates used for defending himself, both his faith and his action. Socrates appealed, number one, to the facts. Number two, to logical consistency or logical coherence. Number three, to benefit or beneficial consequence. Number four, he appealed to personal integrity, personal <coughs> virtue. And number five, he appealed to the sanction of inner guidance. Why do you think that Dr. Bonson has made these observations? How, why, how do they relate to our discussion of Christian apologetics? Anybody know? That's what we're up against. That whole thing. So this is what we're up against when we talk to other people? Yeah. Okay. All this right. Is how many, this, is, this, is how, this is how people think. It's true. This is how many approach apologetics. This is how we approach those people. And these five, I can just see myself doing this. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo. This is not only how most of the world thinks. It's how many of us Christian apologists have thought. It's the same. We do the same thing. We walk through, I don't know if you've seen this in your own life, your own giving an answer, defending your faith to other people, but you can see all these things in your own apologetic toward others. We're going to walk through it again, thinking about the Christian apologist. Scott. So Christopher Hitchens' letters to a young contrarian says to do this, and even if you have no conflict, to create one essentially, to be contrary for the sake of being contrary because it benefits society. I think, I think he goes a little bit off. He sees himself almost like a modern Socrates, doesn't he? Wow. <laughs> At least he's got a British accent. So what Gary said is exactly right. That's why Dr. Bonson is pointing this out, is to show that the way the world thinks, this is the way Christians have defended the faith using the same principles. And, and it's trusting in human reason, the power of human reason to bring that person to faith. So let me, um, just that's why I've called this the ghost of Socrates, because this influence has been immense in our day. It's, it's rehearsed and repeated in our educational system over and over and over. So every new generation of students gets the same thing. We all think the same way in this culture. 
Um, and this is why Dr. Botson has brought to our attention. Evangelical Christian apologists have been trying to defend the faith with varying degrees of sophistication, but in exactly the same way. Like, like Socrates, they begin with the assumption that man's reason alone can lead him to God. And Socrates saw reason as the most divine thing about us, and evangelicals practice the same thing even if their doctrines, our doctrines, contradict it. Okay? So number one, evangelical apologists appeal to the facts that Christianity is consistent with the facts. They, they trust in what they uncritically assume to be the untainted, unbiased reason of the unbeliever to see the facts clearly, to see all the evidence clearly, and to come to reasonable conclusions based on the bare facts alone. So they offer the unbeliever brute facts, ask him or her to make an unbiased judgment. They appeal to the unbeliever as if he or she were neutral, as if they are autonomous in their use of reason. They believe the facts alone will compel unbelievers to make a fair, unbiased, critical judgment of the facts. So the presentation of the facts will prove to the unbeliever the validity and the reasonableness of the Christian faith. Now, is it true that the facts prove what we say? Yes, they do. They do square with our, with reality. The facts are reality. The, the tomb is empty. It's all true. But we can't use facts in our defense Alone, brute facts. Okay. They deny facts. They certainly deny do. Deny facts. They just they look at you and laugh and go, "That's not true." They certain that's that's exactly right. Yeah. So, number two, evangelical apologists appeal to the logical consistency of the Christian faith. Is the Christian faith logically consistent, internally coherent? Absolutely. <coughs> but they appeal to the unbeliever and his reason to see that. So they claim the Christian faith is more logically consistent with the than the unbeliever's worldview, which is true. But in it alone will not convince the unbeliever to leave behind his system for the Christian system. Because what remains untouched in this appeal to the unbeliever's reason and the logical coherence of the Christian system, in contrast to the incoherence of the non-Christian system, what is untouched is the unbeliever's sinful reason. The fact that he is not neutral, and his internal he's internally biased against the Christian faith, which is going to lead him to you know, elevate some facts over others, shade the facts, deny the facts, whatever. Try to squirrel his way around them, whatever. Evangelical apologists number three, they appeal to the beneficial consequence of the Christian faith. This is the argument from the standpoint of all the good that Christians have done for the world, right? You hear this coming out all the time. Again, it's true, but it's not sufficient for making an offense. And the unbeliever here in appealing to all the benefit that Christians have brought the world, what does the unbeliever do? Well, look at the Crusades. Is that beneficial to the world? Look at all the wars that have been fought in the name of religion. Look at the Bible. I don't want a professor say this to me. In, in, he was an English professor. So you know how they lay it on, those English professors? The Bible. The Bible is a bloody book. And it was like, book. It was like two syllables. <laughs> Everybody just turned and looked at Chuck when you said that. <laughs> I'm sorry, is Chuck here? <laughs> sorry, English Chuck. <laughs> you know, all except one. <laughs> 
So, my limited experience with a single English professor was such. Sorry, Joe. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so the unbeliever here remains the judge as you're appealing to him to see the benefit that Christians have brought humanity all through the world's history. He remains the judge and he determines with what, you know, what seems reasonable to him, that which is truly beneficial for society and that which is not. I would say that Christians affirming the validity of the Christian view, the biblical view of marriage is good for society. What's our society saying? We reject that fact. We reject that judgment. And from our reason, it seems to us that throwing away, you know, this binary of male and female, how dare you foist that upon us from some thousand-year-old book made up by men. You know, we need, to, we need to move beyond that. Just as the Bible is wrong on slavery, it's wrong on women, it's wrong on homosexuality, get with the program. You're going to be lost in the dust of history so this turns into an argument. If we appeal to this, it turns into an argument, arm wrestling between the unbeliever, us and the unbeliever, to use Albert Muller's expression, to determine what is or is not best for human flourishing. They say, no, I don't agree with your view of human flourishing. So usually the debate goes to what's called natural law. Well, we should all see naturally, which is once again an appeal to reason for us to see natural law, okay? So the unbeliever can look at the world around him, see what does and does not seem best for the happiness and survival of the species, but it is your internal worldview, based on your internal orientation to God, either as a believer or an unbeliever, as a friend or an enemy, that's going to determine the outcome here, what you see as beneficial and what you don't. Number four, evangelical apologists appeal to their own personal integrity, the virtue promoted by the Christian faith. This argument turns attention to the morality and ethics of individual Christians or Christian groups, which is, it is a double-edged sword. When unbelievers can so easily point to scandalous behavior that has been tolerated within the visible Christian church. And yet, it's true that the moral and ethical thinking and behavior that's revealed by God, taught by Jesus Christ, is of the very highest quality, unmatched in superiority of virtue. We talked about some of that this morning. We've been talking about that. But by appealing to the unbeliever's reason, without challenging him to provide a defense for the basis of his moral and ethical judgments, we end up at an impasse at this point, dueling over who is more moral than whom. Atheists say, I don't need God to be moral. They say they're moral too, right? Number five, evangelical apologists, they appeal to the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. You know, when all else gives way, they say, well, that's just what God has revealed to me. And I know because I know because I know. Right? <laughs> this is the appeal that's reflected in the lyrics of that hymn, He Lives. Have you heard that? I love the song, but I don't like the apologetic in the notes. <laughs> I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. At just the time I need him, he's always near. <clears throat> no appeal to evidences there. It isn't him after all. It's limited, but it's, it's, all this is focused on what's subjectively meaningful to the individual Christian. And I don't deny that it is subjectively meaningful to the individual Christian. It certainly is. Those lines express true sentiments, true subjective experiences, joyful experiences. We all know and understand those. 
course goes on to say, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. I'd like to know what they mean by he talks with me. Is that an audible voice you're hearing or is it the scripture? So, okay, but setting that aside. Um, he lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That's it. That's unabashed subjectivism, isn't it? It's an appeal to the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, just as Socrates did. Saying, it's valid, it's powerful that he lives within my heart, but not for apologetic defense. It's pretty, though. It's pretty. That's right. There's, there's too many high notes. That's not a good story. That very last one where he lives in the way. So that, that, you know, it's interesting about that last line in the hymn. It even points to the need to give an answer. You ask me how I know he lives. Someone has just asked the question. And all they get is, he lives within my heart. That's not an apologetic, appropriate apologetic answer. So how about offering some evidences for a rational faith, like an empty tomb, like a bold chorus of eyewitness testimony, like changed lives in a changed world, like a Jewish response, whether where it start by covering it up in the beginning and then persecuting and silencing and then the deafening sound of their own silence in response to things like Isaiah 53 and all that, all the rest. We, you know, you could point, and this is where, you know, we're not denying the use of evidences here. We use evidences. It's just, it's the right use of evidences. Right? Of evidence. Okay. So keep in mind, well, I'm not saying in all these five points that any of those five points are untrue of Christianity. They're all true. They're all true. It's just that they're insufficient for apologetic response. And, and even worse, when we stick to those without challenging that biased, prejudiced reason of the unbeliever, all we do is end up hardening the heart of the unbeliever. Okay? We give them more reason why they should reject the Christian faith. We don't want to be guilty of that. <clears throat> so in other words, we could say that Christianity is consistent with the facts. There is an internal logical consistency within the body of Christian doctrine. That's what makes systematic theology possible in the first place. There are beneficial consequences to the Christian faith, though there are also very many sufferings and persecutions. This isn't a prosperity gospel. There is growth and integrity and virtue among Christians who practice the faith consistently. And we are strengthened to deep conviction and a subjective experience with God by the Spirit, by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. All that is true. Okay? But these truths on their own are not how we make our defense for the faith, not our, our apologia. We have to help the unbeliever to distrust what his sinful reason has taught him. And we do that by deconstructing his worldview showing him its insufficiency to provide him with the preconditions of understanding and intelligibility. That is to say, based on how he thinks, whether it's about metaphysics or epistemology or ethics, based on what he thinks, what he believes the world to be, he can't ex give an explanation for any of that. And there's no real consistency to why he lives the way he lives and believes the way he believes. So keep in mind, an appeal to unaided, autonomous reason, going back to Socrates, this actually didn't work for him very well, did it? <laughs> Athens executed a sentence upon him. They were uncompelled by his appeal 
to the facts, to logical consistency, to benefit, to integrity, to inner guidance. And it was Socrates' own view of reason that led him into this trap, into this mess. He's responsible for his own death because he assumed higher of people than he should have. Was his view of reason led him to argue the way he did, and the men of Athens, in the use of their autonomous reason, chose to put him to death. So Socrates' faith in the unaided reason of the men of Athens appears to have been pretty severely misplaced. Whenever Christians follow Socrates in their appeal to reason, their reliance on the unbeliever's reason uh, to lead him step by step into the Christian worldview and into faith in Christ, that confidence in sinful human reason is also misplaced. And it's not only misplaced, but it is wrong. It is even inconsistent with the truth. It's not faithful to the Lordship of Christ. Okay? If you listen to some of today's most popular apologists for any length of time, you're going to hear them appeal to the unbeliever's reason, treating the unbeliever as if he were autonomous, as if his reason were neutral, and his thinking were capable of unbiased, unprejudiced judgment. And it's as if they treat faith and reason as someone at odds with one another. They employ each in the argumentation, first reason and then faith, using sort of a two-step method. So it starts with the belief that there's some knowledge of God that can be known by reason alone. Uh, like general truths about the Creator, such as we see listed in Romans 19, uh, 1, 19, and 20, or Psalm 19, 1 to 6. In fact, turn over to Psalm 19. Now, I want to show you this. In contrast, so they believe some, some truths about the world and about God, the unbeliever's reason can lead him there unaided by God. And then there are other truths, by contrast, that are known only by faith. You must have faith, like the gospel, or the incarnation of Christ, or the trying nature of the Godhead. They believe that we leave reason behind, and we embrace those by faith, okay? So it's that epistemological crisis, it's that existential crisis that Soren Kierkegaard talked about, taking that big, great big leap of faith into the unknown. So reason leads us only so far, but eventually we come up against the chasm of what we must believe, and we have to dive into it. But it's okay, God's got a big hand and he'll catch you and lift you up. And so anything that doesn't make sense to your reason, as Soren Kierkegaard pointed out, this is what he thinks, um, it's okay, faith covers it. Faith covers it. We, we don't reason, but is it hot in here? Yes, it's hot. hot. Yes. You're not hot. <laughs> I'm not hot. Not weird. Uh, I'm, no. What? Nothing. I'm getting it. I can't divide the room. Thanks. Put all the people who want it more hot over here and more cold over here. Rod's going to do some magic. Okay, so, um, so in Psalm 19, I want to show you how they think in making apologetic arguments. We only have time for just a few comments here, but look at Psalm 19, 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, it is the voice of the created order, goes out throughout all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them, uh, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber like a strong man and runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. Stop there. This section here, verses 1 to 6, is about the universality of general revelation. In verse 1, we see universal truths 
that the heavens, the expanse of the heavens and everything beneath it reveals, okay, all facts, all of them universally accessible for observation, for study, uh, for pondering. They're available at all times, verse 2. They're available, verses 4 to 6, in all places. All those facts reveal, as Romans 1.20 says, they reveal the God's internal, uh, eternal power and divine nature, all being clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made. Okay? That's general revelation. Many evangelical apologists believe that, that all the knowledge of general revelation is known and understood and accessed by human reason and also rightly judged by human reason or able to be rightly judged by human reason, okay? Also, the implications of that knowledge is also available to unaided human reason. They can get to it. So some theologians call this natural theology, and the reason needs to be educated in natural theology. That is to say, it's available to human reason unaided by faith, but reason, as they say, Reason and natural theology can only take us so far. So then we get into the second half of Psalm 19. Look at it. So verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving, or another word would translation would be converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. All of that right there is a meditation and a, a, an elaboration, an explanation, an exposition of special revelation in contrast to general revelation. All of this is given by God to specific particular people, not all people at all times and all places to contrast with the first part. So that's, that's true. But they say, we use human reason to get them to the brink of needing special revelation. And then faith takes over and leads them the rest of the way, okay? So to come to the appreciation of David, that David had, like you can see David's joy in this meditation on special revelation. And to come to the same appreciation, they say we need to move beyond reason and into the realm of faith. Only faith can embrace what God has revealed in the law and in the gospel. Thomas Aquinas taught this, Catholic theologian. He believed that reason lays a foundation for faith. That's what uh, the Thomistic approach to apologetics teaches. First, we need to show Christianity to be reasonable. Um, possible, probable uh, to the unbeliever, and only then have we laid a foundation with reason for faith to grow out of, okay? Reason operates uh, in the unbeliever autonomously, really without bias, or bias that can be overcome, is able to use natural theology to come to the right conclusions, and it can only learn what's available through general revelation, so reason has a limit. It takes faith to complete it. And then faith takes over from reason. Many evangelicals have followed Aquinas in this very thing and only differing from him in what special revelation is revealed about the gospel. So that's where they part ways with Aquinas. But they agree with him on the two-step method of apologetics. We start with an appeal to the unbeliever's reason. Once the unbeliever is convinced of the facts, then we press home the demands of faith. Reason takes them through the door of salvation. Faith takes them through it and beyond. 
me give you an example of this approach, and one that I've actually used mistakenly throughout my life as a Christian. It's one I heard Dr. Sproul use at a recent Shepherds Conference. Um, and we, you're going to identify with this. The incontrovertible, incontrovertible proof for the truth of Christianity is the empty tomb, right? Historical fact. Go to Jerusalem right now, scour all the tombs, you're never going to find Christ's body. It's empty. That's the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, right? You ever heard that? Ever since Josh McDowell evidenced the demands of verdict, uh, verdict uh, Frank Morrison's argument, who moved the stone, uh, Lee Strobel's book, I believe, The Case for Christ, has a lot of this in there, too. All those good books, they're presenting evidences, they're tracing facts to a conclusion, logical consistency, all the rest. They see the empty tomb as the grounds of the Christian faith, and I believe that's spot on, okay? But for the unbeliever, the person to whom we are making a defense for Christianity, what connection is there, actually, between the resurrection of Christ and the need for him to repent and believe the gospel? The argument goes like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is God, and everything he said is true. If Jesus is God and everything he said is true, then we can trust the Bible, since he said that the Bible is true. And if we can trust the Bible is true, then all that's written in it, that is the gospel, the promise of eternal judgment for rejecting the gospel, all that's true too. And if all that's true, then you should become a Christian. It's kind of how it goes, right? Roughly. And we all believe that. But what would an unbeliever say to that? D does that compel his logic if we haven't addressed his unbiased reason? Here are just a few of the ways an unbelieving mind can pull at the loose threads of that argument. Okay? Uh, those that set of Christian inferences. First, he might ask, where do you get all that evidence about Jesus rising from the dead? Of the Bible? And it, what if those who wrote the Bible got it all wrong and made mistakes from inaccurate memory? Why should I trust them? Well, because Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit to ensure they'd get it right. Well, but that assumes that what you're trying to, pr to prove is true, right? That Jesus is God, and he has the power and the authority and the ability to send the Holy Spirit to guarantee the right re written revelation. Accurate. That's a logical fallacy called begging the question, namely that Jesus is divine, had the ability, authority to give the Holy Spirit. That's assuming what we're trying to prove. It's not logically uh, consistent. Secondly, let's, he'll, he'll tell you, let's assume the resurrection, re resurrection to be true for the sake of argument. Why does re Jesus rising from the dead mean he's God? Lazarus rose from the dead. Does that make him God too? And then you're on to another argument, right? Third thing, assuming, number one, that Jesus rose from the dead, number two, that that means he's divine, well, then why should we grant him that everything he says is true? I mean, many divine beings in history were barely more virtuous than human beings are. Some of them were far worse. So divinity, does, divinity alone doesn't necessitate truthfulness, impeccable trustworthiness, right? Then you're on to another argument. Number four, he says... Assuming Jesus rose from the dead, that he's divine, even granted his trustworthiness, what does that have to do with you and me? When Jesus spoke to Jews in a particular place at a particular time in history, what if it was true for them but not for us living today in our culture at our time? You see that? We go on and on. 
It's enough, though, to demonstrate that the unbelieving mind that's informed by his unbelieving reason, he is disinclined to accept our believing arguments and our believing inferences. Just because all that we said about the resurrection and its implications is true, it is indeed true, does that mean an unbeliever has to accept that pattern of inferences? No, and he doesn't. Okay, so much of evangelical apologetics is this kind of argumentation. And it's question begging. It's assuming what they're trying to prove to be true. There's a reason for that. You know, it's the Bible's the word of God. How do you know the Bible's the word of God? Because, well, Jesus, you know, said it was the word of God. Why should we listen to Jesus? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, where do you find that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the Bible. It's, you know, it's circular argumentation. And we are stuck in circular argumentation in a sense because... There's a, uh, the, the self-attesting authority right. of God, God does not appeal to some other standard to let you know that he is true. Because if he appealed to some other standard of authority to show you that he is right and everything's wrong, what would be the authority? That other standard that God appeals to, right? right. So God says, and that is what is. He's a self-attesting authority. We find ourselves though reasoning in a circle, a big old circle. How do we escape the circle? How do we get out of this? Well, we have to start with a proper understanding of the relationship between faith and reason. They are in harmony with one another. They are not at odds. It's not a two-step approach. We're not doing the two-step. You know? it's, it's one approach in harmony, reason. <coughs> the uh, Thomistic view, which is the popular evangelical view, Catholic view, on through history, it puts... Reason and faith at odds epistemologically. It's, it basically says they see faith and reason as two conflicting methods of knowing what we know. You know some set of facts by reason and then other sets of facts by faith. Okay, So it's two separate things. It's schizophrenic. Um, and it's a contradiction at the epistemological level. As Dr. Bonson put it, reason must first do its job. Uh, to, you know, as, as he's describing their view of this two-step method, reason must first do its job to take us from the lower stor story of general truth to the upper story of specific truth, which is then revealed by faith. So they put evidences before the unbeliever's reason. Once the unbeliever accepts the Bible, theism in general, then they call for the unbeliever to abandon his reason and take an unwarranted uh, or, or, no, not an unwarranted, but a warranted step of faith. It's warranted by your reason. So your reason led you here, and now you can take that leap of faith. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, right? So there's another approach, which we don't learn from Thomas Aquinas, but from Augustine. And this approach is consistent with biblical theology. Augustine taught that reason is not primary and fundamental, but faith is primary and fundamental. Faith is the foundation upon which and within which our reason operates. Okay, so they're not at odds. They work in harmony. They're working in, uh, in coordination with one another. He famously said, I believe in order to understand. That's exactly right. I believe in order to understand. That is, in order for my reason to function properly and consistently, lead me to right conclusions, lead me to a proper examination of evidences and facts and all the rest, what's beneficial and what's not beneficial, what's logically coherent and what's not, um, all of that, what's good for human flourishing. Um, 
I first must believe in order to understand and make good, good rational, faithful judgments. So, from Socrates to Aquinas to today's evangelical apologists, they all put reason and faith at epistemological odds, as if they're two conflicting methods of how we know what we know. But, but starting from scripture, working through Augustine and into today's presuppositional apologists, they all see reason as functioning within the sphere of faith and on the foundation of faith. Faith and reason work together in tandem. They're not in opposition. There's two ways of knowing. So the real question for us becomes, what do we believe? What do you believe? What does this person in front of us believe? Because if they do not believe Christianity, and I'm not talking about just theism in general or monotheism, I'm talking about Christian theism revealed in the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the incarnation of Christ. If they don't believe that, well, their reason is tainted. Their, their judgment is biased. Their judgment is prejudiced. And we know that for certain. If they believe in the Christian worldview, well, then we're off and running and we can reason, right? So, because what we believe determines how our reason operates, whether sinfully and erroneously or righteously and in a, in a trustworthy way, we have to get to that point. What do we believe? Okay. So the Thomas says, the Thomas says, join in reasoning with me and I'll build upon your ability to reason. And eventually I'll ask you to take a step of faith with me and believe in Jesus Christ. The Augustinian says, if you don't start with faith, then all your reasoning won't make any sense at all. You must first believe righteously in order to reason. You don't want to, if you don't want to reason from the perspective of faith, from a believing worldview, then you cannot make sense out of anything. All evidences, all truth claims, moralities, ethics, value judgments, unbelieving reason will think and make judgments about those things through the grid of unbelief. They'll never get there. Okay, so think back to what we read about general revelation from Psalm 19, 1 to 6. That... Um, Psalm 19, 1 to 6, it does reveal true knowledge about God, right? General revelation sure. reveals God's eternal power and his divine nature. But does the natural man, does the unbeliever use his reason from the, those evidences and facts to come to the knowledge of the truth? No. The Bible tells us decidedly, no, he does not. Romans 1, 18 says he does the unthinkable. The unreasonable, what's utterly contrary to reason, what's truly violent to reason, he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Why is that? That's the presence of sin. It causes him to act irrationally and suppress good facts. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God, they gore give thanks, they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, they ran headlong into unreasonable idolatry, verse 23, resulting in gross immorality, verses 24 to 27, which all results in a debased, reprobate mind, verses 28 to 31. So why would anyone think the unbeliever's unregenerate reason could lead him to right conclusions about general revelation, about the Bible as the word of God, about true authority, about God as the creator and sustainer of the earth, or any other truth? Sin has damaged and corrupted and tainted his reason, and only regeneration unto faith can make this work again. Okay? Any of this making sense? Mm -hmm. Anybody? Anybody lost? Anybody, anybody lost but don't want to admit you're lost? <laughs> I don't think I'd have believed you if you tried. What's that? I don't think I'd have believed you. I'd have believed this if I hadn't already tried. 
uh, thinking that you know everybody can be reasonable if they choose to be. It's just not the case without without a, a Christian worldview or at least uh, a basis in that. Uh, there's no commonality in reason. There's no ability to agree with what are facts and what are not facts. Um, I thought they were being dishonest. They just can't. This uh, yeah yeah absolutely. Their their minds are darkened, and and that's the way I was. That's the way you were before Christ. I remember um, I told you the story way back at the beginning of uh, this course about my experience with a, a philosophy PhD professor I had who, I mean, he toyed with me like a cat with a, with a wounded mouse. You know, I was trying all this, all this argumentation, so Socratic argumentation with him, and he, he just had a little glint in his eye, a little sparkle, and just played with me for about two hours until my brain was mush. Like oatmeal, uh, you know, I wandered out there, I'm like, what is wrong? I know what I'm saying is true and right, but he, he just, it's not making a dent. And it's because I kept putting facts before his unregenerate reason and asking him to consider what's totally reasonable to you and me. Mm-hmm. But to him, not reasonable. And his, his reason led him into crazy stuff, as it, as it always does. Another, another analogy or an illustration of this, my, brother, my brother's a journalist in his, his professional life, and... Um, we were talking about journalism and how we see journalism from different perspectives, liberal journalism and conservative journalism. The interesting thing is a, a liberal and a conservative journalist will show up to a scene, a political debate or whatever, and they'll, they'll, all, they'll both witness the very same set of facts, all the same words, all the same intonation, body language, facial expressions. But because they unbelieve, or the uh, unbeliever. <laughs> I mean the liberal. I meant to say liberal. Yeah. <laughs> Because the liberal sees the world through one set of lenses and the conservative sees through another set of lenses, some facts weigh heavier to one than the other. Some facial expression by Donald J. Trump looks one way to a conservative and another way to a liberal. Well, maybe probably the same to all of us. <laughs> but they look, they, we interpret all those things differently. We interpret body language differently. We interpret everything differently based on our thinking, based on our worldview. Our reason is going to take us into separate directions. It's the same thing with a believer and unbeliever. And this is back to what I said at the beginning. If we're going to do this apologetic task, we must have antithetical thinking. Think in antithesis, biblical antithesis. Believer, unbeliever. And then we need to pursue this. We don't need one epistemology for theology, that is faith, and another one for apologetics, that is reason. We use the same epistemology, a reason that is grounded in faith for both our theology and our apologetics. That's what's consistent with the biblical worldview. That's what's consistent with Jesus Christ being Lord over our thinking, 1 Peter 3.15. And that's consistent with us taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, starting with our own thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. So scripture has to govern my entire worldview. That is how I think about the nature of things, metaphysics, how I know what I know, epistemology, and how I act in response to all of that, that is ethics. And this includes my apologetic defense to unbelievers who ask me to give a reason for the hope that's within me. So what are we going to do about those unbelievers? 
when we're bound to use sanctified reasoning, grounded in faith and in the sphere of faith, and then unbelievers, conversely, are stuck using damaged, unsanctified reason outside the boundaries of faith, based on their unbelief, what are we to do? Are we just at an impasse? Should we just fold it up and call it a day and not have conversations with them? Are we doomed to forever talk past each other like ships passing in the night? No. We are going to help the unbeliever in the apologetic task. We're going to help that unbeliever by deconstructing this edifice of his unbelief. We're going to, we're going to um, answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So we're going to help him to see how what you believe and what you practice are inconsistent. You don't have, in fact, you, you practice things like justice. You, you decry something is unfair. What's your standard for fair? Do you believe in an absolute transcendent standard of law, like the law of God? No, I don't. All, all, all uh, morals, all morality is subjective and relative. Oh, really? So if I punch you in the face right now, that's not a wrong act. If I take your wallet, that's not a, I sh it's not a matter of whether I should or shouldn't do, it's a matter of am I, am I bigger than you and can get away with it, or faster than you and can run. That's where we try to bring the unbeliever to. That's what's going to, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to set cracks in his foundation. He's confident in his unbelief. We want to crack his foundation so that we can then bring him the gospel, okay? That's what we'll try to get into next time. Well, we can't sing. We're out of time. Um, let's let's uh, close in prayer, and I'll answer that question now. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the time we've had tonight. I, I do pray that you would um, use this to good benefit for us. I pray that uh, things that may have gone past fairly quickly, that you'd bring them back to mind for for folks and help us to really get a grasp on this. I pray that if there are questions that people would be bold to to ask those questions to clarify what's unclear so that we can uh, keep walking forward and learn a, a robust, a strong and biblically faithful uh, to the Lordship of Christ uh, method for doing apologetics and for engaging the unbeliever. We love you. We we love the unbeliever. We, we do want to uh, conduct ourselves with gentleness and respect as we deal with people. We just, again, we pray for your grace to keep on sanctifying us because we know that when we face, uh, I think one, I think Tammy said that when we face the unbeliever, we tend to be reactionary. And, and I know for myself, when I face pride in somebody else, it draws out my own pride. And, and so, Father, I just see my need. I think we all see our need for great grace from you to sanctify us, to to help us to operate according to the love we learned about this morning, uh, a love that only comes from you was demonstrated fully and perfectly by Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us that uh, heart and that love uh, by your Holy Spirit through your word. Keep renewing our minds, keep transforming our lives, and help us to be effective and fruitful witnesses for you, for the gospel. For the sake of Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.